Red Salute, welcome to the Manifesting Podcast. Now, this week's show is going to be structured just a little bit differently than the last few weeks. I'm going to start off by discussing some listener feedback that you've had from me, which I, I do always appreciate, whether it be good or bad, for better or worse. So we'll discuss that a little bit. After that, I'm going to move into kind of a mini segment concerning some of the major headlines we've seen in the news the last week or two. Talk a little bit about gun control, this uh, March for Our Lives action, which took place yesterday, which would have been Saturday. And we'll also discuss the really unfortunate return of uh, John Bolton to the to the spotlight. Now, this is a guy that I absolutely loathe, and I was hoping I would really never have to utter his name again in my lifetime. But here we are. These are the times we live in. So we'll discuss that little troll as well. After that, we'll jump into the two longer segments, the first of which is going to be concerning the alt-right. Now, I know the alt-right is still a really major story, especially here in the United States, And it's something I haven't had a chance to discuss on this show just because the whole phenomenon concerning the alt-right really, really took off after Trump was elected and kind of during my hiatus from the show. So I figured I'd put my two cents out there. I want to talk about how they are not a reaction as they claim to like social justice warriors online. They are not a reaction to quote unquote far left extremists. This is not some horseshoe theory bullshit. So we'll discuss the alt-right, their ideology, or really the lack thereof. In the second segment, we'll continue our discussion about revolution in a place like the United States or the imperialist centers. Again, this is a really tough discussion to have. It's tough to navigate, but my intention is to try and wrap up that discussion this week. We'll see how we're doing on time. So I want to kick off this episode just by discussing some listener feedback I've had over the last couple weeks. We'll talk about two messages in particular that I've received. The first one was concerning the fact that I wasn't really discussing headlines, current events anymore, which is something that I know I used to do almost every episode previously. Now, my intention was to return to doing at least a little segment around current events, which is why I'm doing one this week as well. You know, I know the last three weeks I haven't really done that. And the reason being, as I discussed kind of on my return episode, is I wanted to clear the air around my personal ideology about where I'm coming from so you know what to expect from me moving forward. Because I know where I'm at ideologically now is not for everyone. We'll discuss that when we talk about the second message I received. Um, But yeah, again, I, I had always intended on returning to do kind of you know, a little bit of a segment again on current events and headlines. So fear not, that's going to be a permanent part of the show moving forward. But again, I just wanted to make my return, kind of form lines of demarcation on where I'm at now ideologically and where I was then. Now, that being said, that type of feedback is especially valuable because I do want to know what people are enjoying, what's resonating with people, what's landing, what's not landing. My intention isn't to just hop on the mic and talk about a bunch of shit that only I enjoy. So, you know, if you have ideas for the show, if you have topics you want me to cover, if there's something I'm talking about too much and you're just totally not interested in it at all, let me know. You know, I'll incorporate that feedback into the show. My intention is to make something that's kind of listenable, enjoyable, and again, something that resonates with people. So that type of feedback is really valuable, so I do appreciate it. So please keep that up. Now, on this topic... 
of things I've been discussing since my return kind of leads me into the second message I received. Now, I am paraphrasing here, but essentially the message said, oh, so you've gone full tanky now, no longer interested in the show, thanks, bye. Now, this message made me laugh a little bit just because I do see a lot of my previous self in that stance. I understand where people are coming from when you hear about communism or Stalin or Mao or other figures, and you're not just hearing this this parroting of Western propaganda that you grew up under. I understand it's hard to break through that. The propaganda surrounding those figures and the concept of communism is extraordinarily strong, and I think this is kind of proof positive of that. That's why I made it a point, you know, during my episode, even though I, I did say it was a quick and dirty debunk, of pointing out that I don't think these are infallible figures. You know, you will see people online, like on Left Book or Left Twitter, say, you know, saying that Stalin was this god figure who did no wrong and they're completely serious. Or they're putting the DPRK up on this mantle as a shining example of socialism. You know, they're not doing anything wrong there either, which I think is a slightly absurd position, obviously. But it is way less absurd than just buying this bullshit you hear in the West hook, line, and sinker about the DPRK or about communism or about Stalin or Mao. It's important to break down that propaganda. It really is. So, I mean, if you want to call me a tanky for trying to have an honest conversation about communism, I mean, that's absolutely fine. I'll wear that badge. I'm not not ashamed of that. You know, if you want to call me a tanky for looking for an ideology that actually has had successful revolutions around the world, I guess that makes me a tanky. I'm fine with that. In my opinion, the point of being a leftist is to actually overthrow these systems of exploitation instead of just talking about doing so. So if that makes me a tanky, then that's absolutely fine. Again, I'll wear that badge proudly. Let's jump into a few headlines from the last week. I want to start by discussing this March for Our Lives action and talk a little bit about the conversation around gun control in the United States. I want to kick this off by saying that, you know, me being a jaded leftist aside, my critiques of peaceful protest aside, I do think it is really cool and pretty inspiring to see so many young people going out there, putting it on the line, taking it to the streets and trying to affect change. You know, you have to start somewhere. Again, I do have my critiques of peaceful protests, but what else are these kids supposed to do in this moment? So that's really inspiring. You know, it does give me a lot of hope to see that so many younger people are willing to go out there and put it on the line. So I think that's awesome. You know, support to all those kids who went out yesterday and, and the people that supported them. Now, concerning this this conversation around gun control, which has been really on everybody's lips, you know, gun control is a nuanced issue here on the left because I think arming poor people is important <laughs> if we're, if we're going to have a revolution. So that aside, I just think a couple of topics that have been woefully under discussed when it comes to this gun control conversation. One is that any form of gun control has to involve disarming the police. I mean, look no further than this really fucking heinous, disgusting event that took place in Sacramento. I'm sure all of you have heard about it. If for, you know somehow you haven't just do a quick breakdown you know, you had this guy, Stephen Clark, in his own backyard, 
holding a cell phone who was shot 20 times by the pigs in Sacramento. Um, you know, I, I listened to the body cam footage and it's just, it's so fucking haunting and infuriating to listen to. I mean, it's not a news story. This happens every day in the United States where people of color are just gunned down by pigs. But this was just one of the more disgusting examples. I mean, and then you, you know, you compare that to how Nicholas Cruz, the shooter, um, you know, down in Florida, the school shooter was apprehended without a shot fired. You look at how Dylan Roof, who shot up the church in the South, was apprehended and then taken to get fucking fast food on his way to prison. You take a look at this Austin bombing and you have the police there coming out saying this was a troubled, mentally ill kid. And you have Stephen Clark, a person of color who's standing in his own fucking backyard, gunned down, shot 20 times for holding a fucking cell phone. So again, any discussion about gun control in this country has to start with disarming the pigs because they murder more than anybody in this country. Gun violence really starts with them. So, um, you know, I, I, I hope at some point that becomes a broader topic in this discussion because I think it's something that not a lot of people are talking about besides leftists right now. So that has to be a part of the discussion. Another topic to think about here, because a lot of people are wondering, you know, this culture of violence, this gun culture, where does that come from? Why is that so big here in the United States? And access to firearms is part of it, no doubt about it. But something that, that is woefully under-discussed as well is that this is a culture built and sustained on violence. We have to be honest about that. This is such a violent nation. I mean, we're out there right now plundering other nations, murdering people on the daily. So to assume that people that grow up and live in this culture believe that this is the best nation on earth and see this very nation going around and murdering people daily to assume that that doesn't trickle down into the psyche of its citizens is is foolish it's absolutely foolish so if we want to have a discussion about why this this nation is so violent again look no further than our military look no further than our imperialist actions that it starts with that it really starts with that again this is a nation built and sustained by absolute heinous violence so it's no wonder that the citizens get involved in those very same actions so often so it's not just access to firearms though one could argue that that's a big part of it it is just part of our culture it is woven into our culture this is a violent racist nation and we see that play out not only around the globe but here at home as well Speaking of violence, let's go ahead and talk about the evil Lorax, um, John Bolton. So Trump's revolving door has been at work again. We have H.R. McMaster out as National Security Advisor. We have John Bolton in, unfortunately, as National Security Advisor. Like I said at the top of the show, this was a man that I had hoped to never talk about again, but here we are. This is just the world we live in. So if you're unfamiliar with John Bolton... You know, you're maybe a little too young to remember the George W. Bush regime. This is one of the worst characters from that uh, that whole group. I would still probably put Dick Cheney at the top of that list, but it's it's a tough competition. I mean, John Bolton gives him a run for his money. You have never seen a more hawkish, disgusting little man than John Bolton. He is somebody who has advocated for going to war with Iran, kind of ad nauseum. He's already talked about ramping up pressure against Venezuela. So the warmongering is about to reach new heights here, unfortunately. So 
I, I do, um, I do advise you just to do kind of a quick search on John Bolton's history. So you can just kind of get a rundown of some of the heinous, disgusting actions he's been a part of. So it's, um, it's a dark day in the United States as if it weren't already dark enough, but it's an especially dark day when you have John Bolton back in a position of power. So that was really depressing news from this last week. And I was pretty nauseous when I saw him in his national security advisor. So I'm sure we'll be talking more about him and his rhetoric as the weeks go on here. We'll go ahead and wrap up headlines this week on that depressing little story about John Bolton, unfortunately. Now, this is something, the current events and headlines that I'm planning on doing going forward. So if you have any suggestions, ideas on things you want me to talk about, for sure let me know. You can usually find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. I do have a Facebook page up now. I am on Instagram, so you can find me there as well. Again, I do appreciate the feedback, and I'm happy to talk about any topics that you all want to hear about. If you want to support the show at all, I do have a Patreon set up at patreon.com slash ManifestPod. That support is always greatly appreciated. from one depressing story to another, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the alt-right. Now, since Trump took office, the alt-right is kind of the story that won't go away in the United States. Kind of on a weekly basis, we see skirmishes between alt-right activists or Proud Boys and Antifa activists. We hear them crying about the fact that their free speech rights are being infringed upon and they don't have this platform to go out and be fascist assholes, which, you know, cry me a fucking river. But, um, you know, I really want to talk about who the alt-right are, where they come from, etc. Now, if you talk to alt-right activists, they'll claim that they are simply a reaction to these out-of-control social justice warriors online, you know, a reaction to this call-out culture, to virtue signaling. And if it weren't for the left and these SJWs being so unhinged that they wouldn't even exist, they wouldn't doing what they're doing essentially you know th this would all be unnecessary if it weren't again for this rabid sect on the left but we have to have an honest conversation about who these alt-right activists actually are because i think when we have this discussion amongst liberals or even some well-meaning leftists this conversation will come up and you'll have people saying well shouldn't we be trying to reach these people is this just working class white people who've been kind of disenfranchised by capitalism as well should we not be out there trying to educate and organize these people as well? I mean, these are potential revolutionaries, right? Now, if that's who these people actually were, I could see the merit in that argument. I really could. I understand the need to educate and organize, but that's not who these people are. More often than not, these alt-right activists are middle-class to upper-middle-class white males, and these are people that you probably don't need to organize around anyways, let's be honest. These are people that are, have been anti-leftist since they came out of the womb. These are people that are born in a privilege, not just white privilege, but financial privilege as well. And that really is the key factor to remember here. These are privileged people. 
So while they claim to be nothing more than a reaction to the extreme left, and this extreme left is just out there trying to level the playing field a little bit, these people, because they're so used to being on top, they're so used to being privileged and having things their way, they see any attempt at leveling the playing field really as a personal attack on themselves. And that really leads us into the next point here. I think a question a lot of people ask is about these alt-right activists is, okay, so they're being challenged online by quote-unquote social justice warriors, and their reaction is to turn into neo-Nazis, to turn to fascism. Why is that the first option they turn to when they're challenged? I think the answer is right there, actually. This is a country, especially if we're talking about the United States and the alt-right in the United States, that is built on white supremacy. It's woven into the fabric of this nation. So when white people feel challenged by any leveling of the playing field, it's just easy to turn to white supremacy. White supremacy is always an option in this country. It's the easy answer for white people, and that's why they so quickly run to it as an option when they're challenged. Just like when capital is challenged throughout history, we see it turn to fascist ideology. Same thing with white people. When they're challenged, we see them go to this white supremacy, this Nazi ideology. It's the easy answer because it's something they can always fall back on. It is a part of this nation. There's no getting around that. It's the same reason you'll see many of these alt-right activists championing the work of somebody like Jordan Peterson, a quote-unquote intellectual. This is a guy who just kind of hides misogynistic and fascist language inside of a word salad, and at the end of the day, he's just kind of intellectually bankrupt. The guy doesn't make any salient points. He's just ridiculous. But again, he's seen as an intellectual by these people who just want to believe that their outlook of white supremacy, of male supremacy, of patriarchy, is somehow intellectual. It's somehow intelligent, that this is right. So this is why they rally around a guy like Jordan Peterson, who again calls for those things, uses a few big words, and these people are very impressed by that. More often than not, this is kind of a petty comment, but I don't care because I just think Jordan Peterson's such a piece of shit. I think a lot of people who who really recommend his work and are enthralled by his work are people who haven't read a book like past high school, past the required reading they had to do in high school. So they'd read something like this and they're like, oh my God, this dude's so intelligent. And look at this. He's agreeing with all my points. I get to go out and be a fucking scumbag to women. I get to be a white supremacist. I was right all along because this supposed intellectual tells me so. It's gross. It's super gross. And fuck Jordan Peterson, basically. So that little mini rant aside, um, alt-right activists, when we're talking about this topic, are unfortunately not the only people we have to deal with. You will have liberals and centrists who see the so-called far-right and far-left as basically the same. They're both equally bad in a lot of ways. Now, what they are espousing is what's called horseshoe theory, where, again, the opposite poles, whether they left or right, at the end of the day, end up being equally bad, and the answer is always somewhere in the middle. But let's actually look at those polls. Let's have an honest conversation, right? You have one side calling for fascism, for white supremacy, for genocide, for patriarchy, and you have the other side calling for equality, calling for basic human services to be met, calling for the end of exploitation. If you can honestly look at yourself in the mirror and say that those are both equally bad, I'm not going to be able to reach you. I'm sorry about that. So this answer that it's somewhere in the middle, we must defend this platform for fascism. Like even you see the ACLU out there like, oh, we got to give Nazis a right to free speech. Fuck that. That's ridiculous. This horseshoe theory has always been bullshit. It still is BS. So when we're defending the rights of fascists to 
go out there and espouse their nauseating ideology. We're not doing anybody good. We're doing people harm. So the answer is not in the middle. Hate to break it to you liberals. So just to nutshell this talk really quick, these alt-right activists are not people that we would have been able to reach, to educate, to organize. These are people, white males more often than not, that were born into privilege and deserve to be treated as the enemies that they are. Getting to the final segment for this episode, again, I wanted to try to wrap up our conversation about revolution in the imperialist centers, especially a place like the United States. I wanted to do a little more reading during the week to explore this topic a little bit more, and I did so, but we kind of end up in a similar spot here. I talked about why this topic is under-theorized, because we don't have a lot of proof out there of what works and what doesn't in the imperialist centers. What we do know is that insurrectionary theory depending on this glorious day where everybody's going to rise up at some point in the distant future. All we have to do is just keep being anti-capitalist till that happens. That's not going to work for us, so we do have to put in some work before that point. Let's be honest about that. Something we do need, and something that's maybe a little controversial, is instead of kind of sitting on our duff and just talking about this glorious day that's going to maybe come, probably not, but we hope it does, it is important to start some of the work for actual revolution and i think like mao said and i'm gonna butcher the quote here because i don't have it right in front of me but without a people's army the people have nothing i think that's important and i think that's universally applicable so some of the work that needs to be done in the meantime does surround organizing some kind of people's army how that exactly looks is tough to say because again this is something we're gonna have to uh to go to the lab and test again like we talk about with revolution and and treating communism as a science and revolution as a science this is something that will have to be put into action before we know whether it works or not we know what to do what not to do etc but you do need some kind of a people's army if you want any hope of having an actual revolution that's something we can't get around now if we look through history there are examples where people's armies have been very successful main example really is is China, obviously, which was, again, more of an agrarian revolution where you have armed peasants surrounding the cities, kind of taking them over one by one. But we can learn from something from that. We can learn something from that, and we can apply it creatively. We can look at India, where you have Maoists kind of taking pot shots at police equipment and the equipment of the repressive government there and being successful in some cases. Look at the PPW in the Philippines and look back at the history of PPW in Peru. You can learn things from them. If you apply them creatively, we must learn from their successes. You can also look at examples like Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan or the war in Vietnam, where you had vastly outarmed and outnumbered people able to stave off the U.S. military. Now, this wasn't through a head-on clash with them because that would have led to slaughter. They were creative. You know, they kind of pestered the forces there, and the U.S. was unsuccessful at the end of the day. So I think it's important if we're talking tactics to know that a head-on clash with something like the U.S. military is just never going to work. It's a protracted people's war. This is something that's going to take a while. So forming small people's armies, learning what we can from these successful revolutions around the world and trying to creatively apply that to our situation is kind of the name of the game. Again, there's no definite answers here because we don't have definite proof of what works and what doesn't. But at least attempting something like that learning our lessons certainly beats just sitting around talking about this glorious day that's never going to come. I feel a lot of leftists in the West get comfortable and complacent in that position. They just hope that 
if we keep organizing, if we keep being anti-capitalist, one day this glorious insurrection is going to come. But part of them, I think, really knows that it won't. And that's kind of a safe mindset. Again, it's safe to not actually have to have the revolution. We have to be honest about that. Now, wherever you may land on the idea of revolution in a place like the United States, I think it's really important that we start at least having that discussion. You know, for revolutionaries, the point is to have a revolution. And I think that's something that's rarely talked about, especially here in the West, which is really unfortunate. So let's get those ideas on the table. Let's hash it out, because I know a lot of this is it's just a germ of a theory, really. Again, there's no proof. So let's hash that out. What I'm going to do is I'm going to link to the two main articles that I read for this topic, the PCRRCP's work. I'll link to those on my SoundCloud page. I really, really encourage you, if you're serious about this, to check out those articles. Give them a read. See what you think is right, what sounds wrong, etc. Let's have a discussion about it. You know, There's other people out there who, uh, who have put out work on this as well. I'd be happy to link to them as well. But again, it's important to at least start having this discussion seriously, because otherwise we're just kicking that can down the road and nothing is actually going to change because we haven't changed anything really yet doing what we're doing. So we've got to change up the tactics. We need to at least have this discussion. So let's do so. Again, I'll link to those articles on my SoundCloud page. Happy to answer any other questions about that. And let's, uh, you know, let's hash it out. Let's talk about it. So that's going to do it for this episode. I hope you got something out of it. Hopefully this was interesting. Again, I do really appreciate the feedback, so if you have any feedback on this episode, on any of my episodes, happy to talk with you about it and try to implement some changes if that's what you are looking for. Again, if you want to find me, easiest place to find me is on Twitter at ManifestPod. I do have the Facebook page, just look for Manifesting Podcast on Instagram. And again, if you want to support the show, which is always really appreciated, you can do so at patreon.com slash ManifestPod. So until next episode, Red Salute.